This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Alrighty, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back for another wonderful Parsha class. Thank you for coming out. I appreciate you. If you're watching this on Zoom, I appreciate you as well. If you're watching this later on Torah Anytime or listening to it on Torah Anytime, I appreciate you as well. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I want to thank the amazing folk over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for setting up this beautiful lunch and learn and ensuring that our bellies are full, not just our mind. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it's filled with billions of hours of incredible Torah knowledge. Feel free to stroll on down to TorahAnytime.com and download some Torah. Fill. Your cerebrum, your cerebrum, or your medulla oblongata with great Torah knowledge and become a better human being. Alrighty, let's get started with this week's Torah portion. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Vayechi. Okay, Vayechi. Uh, this is the Parsha in which, of course, Jacob passes. Better hope he had some life insurance, right? Leaving behind 12 kids. Well, he died at 147, and most of his kids were relatively grown up, so if they hadn't figured out their financial situation by then, which it seems like today, no matter what age you, a person passes away, their kids have likely not figured out their financial situation. But in any case, uh, whether or not Jacob had life insurance is unknown. What is known is that he died in this week's Torah portion at the age of 147. Before he passes away, he calls in his children, and he gives them various blessings. We're going to focus today... I'm going to try to focus literally on just the blessings of two of his children. Okay? Here we go. Those two children will be Yehuda and Zebulun. Yehuda and Zebulun. And actually, they are back to back, which makes it quite easy for me. Let's read it inside. He's got all his sons all around him, right? This is the death of Jacob. As you can imagine what the, what the scene in, in the room was like. First of all, we know that in general, listen to this, I don't know if you knew this, but do you know that the Talmud tells us when someone is sick, God comes and hovers by their bedside. Did you know that? There you go, yeah. When, when a person is sick, the Shekhinah comes in and hovers by the bedside. That's why actually there's a Talmudic statement that you shouldn't sit on the, on the, on the bed of a sick person. Because like you're sitting like, try to sit a little lower down, find a chair. Which, of course, today, most people, unfortunately, if they're sick in the hospital, the beds are pretty high, so standard chair, you're doing okay. But for real, the Gemara says you should not sit on the same bed as a sick person, because like the Shekhinah is there, the, the, God's holy presence is there. Sit on a chair a little bit below. Of course, if the person needs to be sat with for comfort, for sure you should do that. Now, the Shekhinah is there. Jacob is surrounded by his 12 children, the incredible tribes of the Jewish people. He's surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel, and he is on his deathbed, and he starts giving out blessings to each of his children. Interestingly enough, there are a few of his children that don't get blessings. They get admonishment. They get a little scolding. Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi do not get blessings. They get... Uh, you know, he kind of tells them off a little bit. And that's because the best time to tell somebody off is before you die, as the Medrash explains, because they know that you're not doing it out of spite, they know that you're doing it out of love, and they're not going to take it out on you. Sometimes someone gives you a little bit of a stiff word, and you go, oh yeah, you say that to me, I'll show you. Someone passes away, there's none of that. So we know that David, sorry, that, that, that 
before Jacob passed away, he kind of gave it to his kids a little bit, out of love, the ones that needed a little bit of a speaking to. Uh, Moses did it before he died. That's the book of Deuteronomy. He's about, he's about to die, and he gives the Jews a lot of admonition. King Solomon did it before he died. When he was young, he wrote the book of, of Shira Shirim, Song of Songs, which is a beautiful love story between God and the Jewish people. Before he died, he wrote the book of Koheles, Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says Koheles. Vanity of vanities, all is vain. Right? That's the end message. His last message is a pretty intense message. Okay? So we see that pattern being carried out. Let's read specifically the blessing given to Yehuda. Yehuda, ata yoducha achecha. You, your brothers, will acknowledge. The brothers did not want to acknowledge the kingship of Joseph. When Joseph was telling them these dreams that he was going to be in the middle, they were going to be bowing down, the brothers were like, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, they said to him, Do you think you're going to rule Hamaloch Timloch Banu? Hamashol Timshalenu? You think you're going to be a king over us? You think you're going to rule over us? They were not willing to accept the kingship of Joseph. However, Yaakov says to his son Judah, You, your brothers, will. Your brothers will acknowledge you as the king. Willingly. The children of your mother, your brothers, will bow before you as the king. Gor Aryeh Yehuda. A young lion cub is Yehuda Miteref Bini Alisa. You rise up from the prey. Kara Ravatz Aryeh. He crouches down like a lion. Ukulavi Mi Kimena. And like a, a, a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Lo Yasser Shevet Mi Yehuda. The scepter shall not leave the tribe of Yehuda, which we've spoken about before, once there were, there, were, there were kings, there was a Jewish king before the house of Judah, i.e. King Saul, who came from the house of Benjamin. However, as soon as the scepter moved to David, from then on it was supposed to be straight line down through the tribe of Judah, and the only people who tried to disrupt that was the Hasmonean dynasty, the Machos Beis Chashmonaim, which was made of Kohanim. They had won the war, so they felt we can now take over, but we know what happened to them. They were massacred in a slave rebellion as a punishment for them taking over the Malucha, for taking over the, the, the rod, the, 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 the uh, kingship. Yaakov had clearly said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Nor a scholar from among his descendants. Ad Shiloh, until Shiloh shall arrive. Who is Shiloh? Mashiach. Shiloh. Shai means a gift. Lo is to him. Shiloh, which has become a very big thing in Christian thought, there's the battle of Shiloh, right? Shiloh, sometimes you'll see a church of Shiloh. The word Shiloh, Shiloh, is shy, which means a gift. Lo is to him. That's the gift that Mashiach is going to bring. So, when it comes to Yehuda, Jacob is saying, you guys will be the kings and you'll have scholars and leaders amongst you until Shiloh, until Mashiach comes. And he will bring an assemblage of, na- of nations. Now he describes the land and the wealth of Yehuda. He will tie his donkey to a vine, and to the vine branch his donkeys fall. I.e., in the land of Judah there will be a lot of 
vineyards. But we're not done yet. He'll have so much wine, ki base bayayin show. He'll be able to launder his clothing in wine. That's how much wine he'll have. Right? I'm thinking maybe I should launder this white shirt in, a, in some wine. What do you guys think? Huh? Should I launder this shirt? <laughs> Probably not a good idea unless I want to dye the shirt deep purple. Right? But uh, maybe a white wine. Maybe a white wine is good for laundering. Maybe it has in it some uh, compounds. We've got to send the people a Procter Gamble to tear apart the compounds in wine, and I bet you they would find. I'm not even joking, by the way. That's the amazing thing. We're going to see in a second. There's all these biblical statements. You're like, ah, oh, that's weird. And then you find out, no, it's actually not weird. It's super true. So I bet you if Procter & Gamble would send some scientists to tear, about, to tear apart all the compounds in wine, they'd probably find in white wine some sort of caustic, some sort of enzyme that breaks down food stains and cleanses it. But in any case, he says... He will be able to wash his clothing in wine, ubedam anavim suso, and his robe in the blood of grapes. In deep purple, rich. Uh, remember, he's the royal color. Purple is the royal color. I don't know if you guys know this about me. My favorite color is purple, because purple is royalty. Ever since I'm a kid, for whatever reason. My favorite color is purple, because purple is royalty. Now, my name happens to be Yehuda, by the way, for the record. And I'm a Scorpio, so we're supposed to take over the world at some point. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, God forbid, we don't go by the Scorpio thing. But anyway, I am a Scorpio, but I'm saying we don't go by that. We don't believe that. Jews don't believe that our mazel boxes us into anything. But in any case, I've always liked the color purple. So I can imagine, you know, Yehuda, the kings, the royal kings, the royal family, they're, they're, cleansed, they're, they're di- dipping their robes in the gr- deep purple um, grape juice, the blood of grapes. Now here's the important last line, because we're going to get into this in, in depth. Chaklili enayim miyayin. He'll be red-eyed from wine. He'll drink so much wine, he'll be red-eyed. Uleven shinayim mechalov, and white-toothed from milk. There'll be so much milk in his land, he'll be white-toothed from milk. Speaking of white teeth, I'd like to make a quick shahakal on this Coca-Cola. Because I don't know if you know, but Coca-Cola definitely does a lot for your teeth in keeping them nice and white. Okay. No, no, no. I'm kidding. All right. Baruch atah Adonai Eleinu Melech Olam Shachol Ni'ebed Varom. Ah. Okay. Now, here's a fascinating thing. Speaking of, we said Procter and Gamble. If they tear apart grape juice and wine, I'm sure they'd find some kind of enzymes in it that are really good for cleaning clothing. When the Jews started coming back to Israel in great numbers in the early 1900s, right? So they set up a lot of vineyards, but mostly in the north of Israel. Now there's a part called Yehuda. Yehuda, if you actually saw a biblical map of Israel, and you would see where the various tribes ended up taking the land. They came into the land. It was a 14-year process of kibush and chiluk, a 14-year process from the time Joshua crossed into the land to conquer the whole land and then split it up amongst the tribes. Yehuda has a, a pretty significant area, but a lot of it is desertous terrain, hence the famous Midbar Yehuda, right? The Judean desert. Why is it called Midbar Yehuda? Because it was on Yehuda's Chalik. It was on Yehuda's part of the land of Israel. A lot of rocky land. When great numbers of Jews were settling back, now remember, 
200 years ago, the entire population of Israel was less than Oak Park. Okay, the entire population of Israel was probably less than Oak Park 200 years ago. Israel laid desolate and empty for thousands of years. Peoples came. They tried to conquer it. Sometimes they even did conquer it. But they were not able to settle it and make it flourish. We know that the land was at one point covered with milk and honey and millions of people. And not just from standard Torah sources, but even look at Josephus, and he describes how it's so fertile and every inch of it is cultivated. But yet, for thousands of years, Israel laid desolate. This is very important in that whole Arab-Israeli conflict. People are like, oh, then these Jews came and they kicked out the Arabs. No one lived there. If you don't believe me, ask our friend Mark Twain, also known as Samuel Clemens, because he traveled to Israel in the early 1920s. Because he wanted to see what's this... He was a very, he was a Philo-Semite, he loved the Jews. He traveled the land of Israel, he wanted to see what's going on. And he writes that the place was empty. He traveled from Haifa, from the port of Jaffa, all the way to Tiberia, to Tiberias. And he said, we did not see a single human being the entire time. So read, read, there's another explorer named Alphonse de la Martin. He also traveled to Israel. In the 1800s, read his writings. He writes, there's no one home. Knock, knock. There's no one even saying who's there. (laughs) No one even saying who's there. There was no one home. The whole land of Israel was empty. Okay? Now, the reason why that was, Hashem actually promised us in the Torah that when I send you out into exile, I'll make a miracle that nobody will be able to successfully enter your land and stay there. Because if they did, it would be very hard to get back there. Imagine if it had been inhabited by 5 million people that we'd have to displace to come back. That would be a problem. But when we came back, there was no one there. Of course, there were some Arabs, there were some Jews, small numbers, really, really small numbers, a couple thousand Arabs, a couple thousand Jews, tiny, tiny numbers. But the Arabs who lived in the area that we now call Yehuda, it was called Yehuda back in the day, now they call it... Yehuda v'Shomron, Judea and Samaria, right? Judea is the land in which the, the tribe of Judah used to live. It's amazing. Kick these people out of Judea and Samaria. Um, why is it called Judea? Oh, right, because <laughs> the Judeans were there. Yeah. How do you say Judean in short? Jew. Alrighty. So the Israelis came back there, okay, and they started settling this area and cultivating it. Now the Arabs in that area, they only would try to grow like olive trees, which are very, very hardy, hardy uh, plants. They're able to grow anywhere. A bunch of God-fearing settlers said, wait a second. In the blessings that Jacob gave his son Yehuda, he said, there's going to be vines everywhere here. How come we're in the land of Judea and there's no vines at all? No one's growing grapes over here. And everyone said, they, well, they consulted with the scientists, the agronomists, the cultivatists, all the people. Look, like, seriously, they, they, they asked everybody, like, can we grow grapes over here? I was like, no, 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 no. For grapes, you need soil. There's rich volcanic soil in the northern parts of Israel, which there is, by the way. It's amazing what an amazing country Israel is. Israel is everything. So they said there's, there's 
great rich volcanic soil in the north of Israel. But in this area over here, it's dry, it's desertous, it's rocky. No can do. But these amazing settlers, they said, um, yes, can do. <laughs> I'm going to read the Torah, and the Torah seems to indicate that it's going to work. I'm going to go with, yes, you can do this. So they started planting vineyards. And what they found is, an amazing thing they found, that the grapes that grow in the area of Yehuda, they don't, their yield is not super high. Which means each vine does not give off a heavy amount of poundage of grapes. Their yield is low. However, the grapes that they produce are uh, some of the best grapes in the world. Literally, in the world. We're talking about award-winning grapes. There are now many wineries dotting the area of the Yehuda. One of the famous ones is Shiloh. Remember Shiloh? Shiloh Winery. There was a place in Shiloh where the Mishkan lived for hundreds of years. The tabernacle lived for hundreds of years. And we were pretty certain we know exactly where it is. And you can find all the pottery around it, which would make sense, because once you use pottery for a a holy uh, uh, sacrificial meal, you'd have to break it afterwards, as the Torah commands us. And in that exact area where we believe the Shiloh Mishkan was built, we find tons of pottery. There's all kinds of indications of exactly where it is. That was called Mishkan Shiloh. And that is where they have an amazing winery called Shiloh. But it's not just Shiloh. Gush Etzion Winery is right there. Absolutely delicious wines. Um, trying to think of some of the other wineries in that exact area. There are more. There are more. I'm just, I'm, I'm right now, I'm not, I can't remember exactly where each one is. I mean, look, my favorite wines in the world come from Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> and why should they not? Can Hashem not bless the world with the most amazing earth to be right in Israel? Shiloh is one of my favorite, favorite wineries. Shiloh, Gush Etzion. There's a number of them, and I've had the honor of visiting them. Of course, in the northern parts of Israel, they also have amazing wine. Yardane, right? Classic. You get a Yardane cab. Let it sit for 10 years, 5 years, open it up right away. A Petit Verdot. You're in for a treat. You're absolutely in for a treat. Okay. And how do they know that? Because the Torah said so. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of Israel. Okay, now... Let's go back and we're going to try to break down this blessing from the beginning. Yehuda, ata yoducha achecha. Yehuda, you, your brothers, will acknowledge as the king. Why was Judah, why did, why did Judah merit to become the king? The Medrash says, that <laughs> Boom! Why did he become the king? Okay. <laughs> Yehuda famously admitted that he did something that was uncomfortable. There's the whole story of Tamar, his daughter-in-law. She was dressed up like a harlot, and she was sitting by the side of the road. The whole story, and he could have easily just let her go and not have dealt with the embarrassment of saying. Okay, I actually was the one who committed that act. But he was Moda. As the Chazal say, Yehuda Hoda Velo Bosh. Yehuda admitted and he was not embarrassed. That, my friends, is king material. 
King material is to admit your wrongdoings without shame. The Jewish kings, the first Jewish king was Saul, Shaul. He was an incredible Torah scholar. He made certain mistakes. Shmuel sent him on a mission to wipe out the Amalekites. He did not. When Shmuel came to him and started giving him reproach, why did you do this? Three times, Shaul blames it on other people. It's the people's fault. They wanted this. I couldn't do this. And you know what Shmuel says to him? You're not a king anymore. Done. Not because you did a mistake. That's not enough to disqualify you from being a king. It's because you didn't admit to your mistake. You didn't. You just shifted the blame. We don't need leaders to sh- who are going to shift the blame. Every loser in the street shifts the blame. We need leaders who are going to take responsibility for their mistakes. David HaMelech, the greatest king of Israel, he did mistakes too. And yet when the prophet comes to him, Nasan HaNavi, Nathan the prophet, came to him and rebuked him. What were the words that came out of his mouth? Not it wasn't my fault, not I didn't know, not I inherited this problem. The first words out of his mouth were, Hashem, I, I sinned to God. You're a king. And you know where you get it from? From your great-great-great-great-grandfather Judah, who was facing a really uncomfortable situation, where he comes out and admits, yes, I, I did an act that was seemingly very inappropriate. <coughs> and because of that, Yaakov says to him, you acknowledged your problems? Everyone will acknowledge you as the king. They didn't acknowledge Yosef as a king, but they're going to acknowledge you as a king. He, so Now, what's amazing is, not only that, Mashiach is going to come out of David. So think about this. Sorry, Mashiach is going to come out of Yehuda, which of course is from, from David as well. The Targum Yonasan ben Uziel, one of the great commentators on the Torah from over 2,000 years ago, he says, he says it explicitly, Yehuda, Ata, Hodas, Al, Maisei, the Tamar, you admitted your own guiltiness in the story with Tamar, because of that, your brethren will acknowledge you as the king, he takes it one step further. What are we called? We're called Jews. What are we not called? Reubenites, Simonites, Levites. I'm a, Le- I'm a Levi. But if I introduce myself, someone says, so what, 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 kind of, what kind of nationality are you? I don't say I'm, I'm a Levite, I'm from the tribe of Levi. I say I'm a Jew. Where does the word Jew come from? Yehudim. Where do we, say it? Where do we see it for the first time? Jews being called Yehudim. Anybody know? Persia. Exactly, Megillus Esther. In Megillus Esther, we see the Jews are called Yehudim, right? That already occurred over 2,500 years ago, right? So Targum Yonason ben Uziel says the Jewish people, <coughs> excuse me, are going to be known as Jews because we want that to be the lesson for everybody. The lesson of Yehuda who admits his mistakes. And that's such a valuable trait that not only does it buy Yehuda the kingship, not only does it buy Yehuda that the, the Mashiach is going to come out of his children, <coughs> but the entire Jewish people are going to be named after him to remind us every day, admit, Yehuda, lehodot, admit your mistakes. 
There's nothing better. You make a mistake. That's not a problem. Guess what? Everybody makes mistakes. But if you admit them, take responsibility for that, that's not something everybody does. Most people will try to shift the blame onto other people. Going all the way back to Adam saying it's my wife's fault and the wife saying it's the snake's fault. Yeah. I'm sorry, we just we don't do all questions open and well afterwards as many questions as you want. Okay, that's one idea also. Okay. Now it says here that your eyes will be red eyed from wine and your teeth will be white. Your eyes will be, you know, bloodshot from drinking such delicious, amazing Israeli, kosher, Judean wines. And you'll have white teeth from milk. But there's a drusha made on this in the Gemara. The Gemara and Tractate Kesubas, page 111b, says, Ulaven shinayim mechalav. Lavan means white. White teeth mechalav from milk. So they break it down. They say, white teeth is better than mechalav from milk. What does that mean? The Gemara says, if you smile at somebody, it's better than you giving him milk. Okay? What, when we think of something that's nourishing to us or a person, the ultimate drink we think of is the, 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 the drink that sustains and nourishes every single human being. When they're a child, when they're a child, they drink milk. That's what brings them up. That's what literally gives somebody all this, you know, the strength and the fortification and the vitamins and everything that they need, right? But yet, the Gemara says, Ulavan Shinayim, better to smile at somebody and show them your white teeth. See, see smile, huh? Then it's better than, than giving him milk. Which is an amazing idea. I want to tell you two different stories that relate to that. Number one, I think I've told this story before, but you can't tell this story enough. In the Holocaust, somebody was just dying of starvation, just dying. Said, I, I can't, I'm not going to be alive in the morning. As was common, in the morning you woke up in the Holocaust, there was generally a couple of people who just weren't getting out of bed. It was so bad. So he decides, like, I'm going to be dead by morning anyway. I might as well go. I'm going to go look by the kitchens in the back. There's dumpsters behind the kitchens. I'll look and see if I can find a potato peel, something, anything. Maybe they threw out some burnt bread. Who knows? Now, of course, going to the dumpsters behind the kitchen was a capital offense. If you were caught, you were going to be shot on the spot. But he's like, I'm not going to make it to morning anyway. I'm going to die by the morning anyway, so I'm going to go. I'm just going to go. So this guy, in the middle of the nighttime, he sneaks out of his barracks. He sees the, the pattern of the spotlights moving across the field. He tries to calculate. He's like trying to run between the spotlights. And he makes it to where the kitchen is. And he jumps into the dumpster. And he hears some rustling around. Is there a cat, a raccoon? What's going on? No, of course not. There's another Yid. Another Jew's in the garbage! And he says, did you find anything? Is there anything here? He says, no. He says, I looked, I looked, I can't find, there's nothing here. He says, come on, please. He says, I'm begging you, I'm not, I'm not going to make it to morning, please. 
you maybe you found something and you just don't want to admit it. Please, I'm I'm gonna die. I'm I'm not gonna. I'm telling you, I won't be alive by tomorrow morning if I don't eat. I'm starving. I'm dying of starvation. Please. And the man looks at him and he says, "I'm so sorry. I don't. I I truly don't have anything. There's nothing here. But let me give you this. Let me just give you a hug because that's all I can give you. And this." Yid comes, and, and these Yidim were all beyond tears. They, had, they, they were dry of tears. But he just takes this poor guy, this starving Yid, and he holds him. And his own body, which barely could give off any warmth because his own body was skin and bones, but he just holds the Yid. Two skeletons embracing in the garbage cans of Auschwitz. And he just held him there and held him. We're going to be okay. We're going to make it. We're going to be okay. And that gave the man the energy to keep on going. And he passed, he lived through the war, and he said, always, he said, if not for that man, I'd be dead. I knew I was going to die by morning, and I would have died by morning. But he gave me the will with that hug. He gave me the strength to keep on going. Lavan A smile, a word of support is better than giving somebody milk. Next story. I feel like I might have told this story before too. Problem is, I tell so many stories that I tell them in so many different places. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I've told this story before, sue me. <laughs> now, my first daughter, who we have the honor of having right here in the back of the class, Aura, was born in March of 2003. Adar. And that's why we named her Ora, Laihudim Haisa Ora, and she lit up our life. She still does. Now, she was born, and after she was born, we went to go live by my in-laws for a little while so that my wife would have extra, you know, people in the house to help her with the baby and so on and so forth. Now, my parents, my in-laws lived around the corner from a big, massive show called Bavav. Bubba was on the corner of 47th and 48th. It was a whole block almost. I think it was between 47th and 48th, or 48th and 49th, on 15th Avenue. And my in-laws lived right off of 15th Avenue. So every day I would go to Bubba to Davin Chakras, the morning service. Now Bubba had dozens of minyanim all day long. And because of that, there was a lot of people who would come around to collect money. Now I was a young guy. I just got, I just gotten married. You know what I'm saying? Like I was, I was... Learning uh, most of the day, I had a little few classes I would give in the afternoon to teach, but I was basically learning pretty much full time kolel. I didn't really have a lot of money, and you have you know you come by davening you could have you could have literally thirty forty people come over you know like this asking for money. I didn't have the money to give everybody what I wished I could give. Now I try to keep always dollar bills in my uh, in my talus bag. Try to keep you know whatever. if I ever run out, I go to the bank. I ask for like a hundred dollar bills. If anyone wants to steal a hundred dollars. Go to my talus bag. <laughs> Sometimes I'm a little low, though, so maybe you may steal from my talus bag and only get like $7, which would be quite pathetic. But anyway, so uh, in those days, I didn't really have, I, I, I didn't have much to give. So what I decided is that every day, I'm going to give the first 20 people who come to me like this, I'm going to give them 20, uh, 50 cents each. And then when I'm done, I'm, I'm just done. I, I can't. I can't afford more than $10 a day. So every morning, I would come. I have a $10 bill. First person come to me, change it out, and everybody come, 50 cents, 50 cents, 50 cents, 50 cents, then you're all done. One morning, I don't remember, I wasn't, I guess I, I, was a, I wasn't in a rush, 
And I was just sitting, they have a massive base medrash, so most of the, the minions are all in these little smaller rooms all around the base medrash, and they're on, around the periphery. But I was now sitting in the big base medrash, and I was just sitting on the side saying to Hillam. And this guy comes over to me. <laughs> I don't have anything for him. So I just give him my biggest smile. I say, in Hebrew, and I speak Hebrew, I say, Slicha, Aval, uh, you know, Manishma, Echakol. You know, how you doing? How's everything going? Now, I just said it with like an American accent. I happen to speak fluent Hebrew. <laughs> and he realized that I spoke Hebrew. And he just sat down with me. And he just let it go. We're talking about this man was holding so much pent-up pain and frustration. The humiliation of going out, begging door-to-door. The pain of being away from his family. The hardship of sleeping with, in, in these like, apartments or basements with 20 other people in the same situation as him. The cold, the doors being slammed on his face. And he just let it all go. And I, and I sat there and I, I took it all and I, I commiserated with him. And I told him, oh, I'm so sorry. And I, and I just, just listened to him and validated him. <laughs> he got up. There was just like, there was a different, there was a different gate. He had a different gate walking away. A different spring to his step. Just being heard. Just being validated. Now, if I would have given him 50 cents... If I would have given him a dollar, if I would have given him two dollars, five dollars, it wouldn't have made as much of a difference. It's just being able to be there for him, humanizing him, hearing him out. It's better to smile at somebody than give somebody milk. I can't tell you how often I hear stories from people who come to our house collecting about the embarrassment that they endure, the shame that's heaped upon them. People not even open the door, go away! Right? No, and it's, it's one thing if the kids are saying, I'm sorry, my parents aren't home, you can't come in, right? Which I respect. I don't think children should be letting in strangers, even if they have a long beard. I don't care. Your parents are gone, the door should be locked, strangers shouldn't be coming into the home. I don't care what, you know, what, what their background is, if they look like rabbis, whatever. Stranger danger applies equally. However, this is what we're talking about people. There was once actually a, 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 um, a very wealthy man, and he was in the middle of entertaining a person who came for money. And the man said to him, can I go to the bathroom? He said, sure. So the bathroom's right here. So the man goes to the bathroom, and he notices that the person left behind his little black book. So he figures, I shouldn't be doing this. It's totally illegal. But I'm going to look on the guy's black book. I want to see what my friends give. I want to see, like, what does he write about us? So he opens it up. He opens up to the right page. Chicago, you know, whatever. This neighborhood, it's like set up, because these people come from year to year. Many of these people come every single year. And he gets to his neighborhood, and he gets to his name. And what does it say? Koes Avalnosein. <laughs> Which means he gets angry, but he gives. Could you imagine that? That's what the guy writes. Like, this is what he's keeping track of all the people that he goes to. This guy gets angry, you've got to be willing to take a little bit of abuse, but he gives a nice check. Can you imagine what a muster schmooze that was? What a reproach that was, just to see how other people see you. Okay. So that's the second part of Yehuda. And by the way, the Gemara tells a story. The Gemara tells a story about a, a, a rabbi, a broker, Chosa'a, who used to hang out from time to time in the marketplace in a city called Lefet. 
Elio was a companion of his. Elio, the Elijah the prophet. One day he said, is there anybody here who's a Ben Olam Abba? The first time he said, no, no one's here. And then a couple hours later, he said, oh, this person is, is... that." Like one guy came in, who's like, that, that person's a Ben Olam Abba. So he went over, asked him, what do you do? He said, I'll tell you tomorrow. Then another two people came in. And they, oh, those guys are B'nai Olam Abba. Those guys are residents of paradise. And he came over to them and says, what, 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 Mama Seichem, what do you guys do? And what do they say? Inchi, Bidichi Anachnu. Right? We are people who make other people smile. We make jokes, we make light, we make laugh, we see people who are sad and we lift them up. And then on top of it, they also added, they try to make peace. If they notice people who, who got into war with each other, people are arguing with each other, people are going to fight with each other, they try to make peace between them. But the, their initial response was, their main, life, their main job in this world was to make other people happy. And what was said about them? They are b'nai olam haba. Like That's like from the highest praise you can give somebody. Now here's the cool thing. You know what you could be? You know what you could be? You could be a b'nai olam haba. You could be a person... Who's going to go to Olam Abba? How? By making people happy. It's that easy. How do you make people happy, Rabbi? Very simple. You know what you do? You smile at them and say good morning. With a smile, specifically. Because guess what? Smiles are contagious. Watch this. I'm going to smile right now. Everybody in this room is going to smile who's awake. Huh? There we go. See, it worked. 100% clinical. We just did a clinical test. We did a clinical study and it worked 100% of the time. You go to the cashier, you're trekking out at Kroger's. Hey, how's it going? How's your day going? Great. Right? You know what I'm saying? Just be that person. You're walking down the hall, you see somebody else. Smile. Good morning. Right? I'm telling you, when I think, when I think of the heroes in my life, when I think of the heroes in my life, these are people who every interaction with other people, they leave the other person, A, feeling special, and B, smiling. I'm thinking of one particular person who lives down the block from me. Every person he meets in contact with, Shalom Aleichem, how are you? He's smiling. He himself, people are mirrors. You smile at somebody, they smile back at you. How are you doing? It's so good to see you. Oh, I can't believe. You know, he's so happy to see you. Then you become happy. Now, why do you get Olam Abba just for making people happy? Listen to this fascinating idea. The Marsha says... Hashem says to us, Imcha Anochi Bitsara, I will be in pain with you. When you're in pain, God's in pain too. You're God's child. Just like a parent is in pain when their child is in pain, God is in pain when you are in pain. So much so that when you have a headache, it says, Shechina Ma'umeres. What does the Shechina say? If you're feeling, you know, you're sick. One of my daughters right now is home, sick. Stomach ache, stomach headache. It's not. What does the Shekhinah say? Kalani Mereshi, Kalani Mizrahi. Oh, my head aches, my head hurts, my arm hurts. Of course, Hashem doesn't have a head, Hashem doesn't have an uh, arm. But the point is, the Shekhinah feels pain. God feels pain with you. When I cheer you up, guess what? Who gets to get uplifted? I'm cheering up the Abishter. It's, it's almost like you can't even say these things. But I don't have to say it. The Marashah says it. The Maharshah says, Ima Anochi Hashem is with us in our pain. You change someone's pain to pleasure, you're changing Hashem's pain to pleasure. How amazing is that? It is really, it's a remarkable thing how easy it is for us to be heroes. All you gotta do, all you gotta do, and you're saying, well, all you gotta do, 
All you got to do is be happy and make other people happy. It's not that easy. I know. But guess what? The good news is, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. It doesn't require money. No money necessary. How much does it cost to make people happy? Last I checked, zero dollars. Although with inflation, I don't know where it's at right now. <laughs> All right, it's so easy. You could be a hero. You can make the Shekhinah happy. You can make the God happy. You can make human beings happy. And guess what? The people who make other people happy, generally speaking, makes them happy too. Okay. Last one. Just want to do one more bracha. Zavulun lechof yamim yishkon. Zavulun will settle by the seashore. Vehu lechof anios, and he will be at the ship's harbor. Viyarchaso ad Sidon, and his border will reach Sidon far into the Mediterranean. Because, well, I mean, he he will be the one who will be traveling far into the Mediterranean because he's going to be a businessman. He's going to be the one who is going to have a lot of uh, trade, international trade. So he's, he lives on the coast, and he's constantly sending ships out onto the, uh, out onto the waters. Now what's very fascinating here is that in this week's Parsha, we see that Zevulun is placed before Yisachar. Okay? Zevulun is placed before Yisachar. Give me one second. Yeah, Zavulun here is placed. Now, who's older, Yisachar or Zavulun? Yisachar. Yisachar is also more prominent than Yisachar would become all the Torah scholars. The Torah scholars come out of Yisachar. But yet, who's mentioned first over here? Zavulun. Why is that? Ah, because Zavulun used to support Yisachar. Zavulun would go out onto onto international travel. Very dangerous back then, right? Going out on boats into the vast unknown and trading with the various Mediterranean countries. And he would go out and risk his life and work hard. And he would take the money that he made and he would split it with his brother Yisachar. So his brother could sit and study Torah. And who does Yaakov put first over here? Zevulun. Guess who does that as well? Moshe. At the end of his life, Moshe puts Zevulun first. Smach Zevulun b'tseisecha v'yisachar b'o'alecha. Let Zavulun be happy with your goings out, your going out to business, and Yisachar in your tents. What's the connection? It's all in one verse? Because Zavulun goes out to make business, and Yisachar could sit and learn. But who goes first here? Zavulun. Fascinating. Now, there's a concept that we know that is the Aron carried its carriers, i.e., the Aron was the holiest vessel in the temple. It was in the Holy of Holies. And inside the Aron was what? The tablets. Two sets, mind you. Broken tablets and the final tablets. The first set that were broken as well as the second set. As well as a small Sefer Torah written by Moses himself. That was in the Aron. So what does the Aron represent? The Torah. Where was it? In the Holy of Holies. When it came time to go travel... From place to place, the Aaron would be the first thing traveling. And here would be an amazing miracle. You'd have the tribe of Levite, that, that's me, <laughs> because I haven't mentioned it before. You know, I say, how do you know if there's a vegan in the room? Just wait five minutes, he'll tell you. 
How do you know if there's a Levite or a Cohen in the room? Just wait. Five. No, I don't necessarily bring up every single week that I'm a Levi. Just maybe half. In any case, so the Levites would come. Actually, the Kohanim would first go into the temple. They would wrap up the Aron in special cloths. And then the Levites would come to carry it. But here would be something amazing and miraculous. When it come, came time to carrying the Aron, the Aron would actually fly up and carry its carriers. While it looked like we're sitting here carrying the Aron, really the Aron is carrying us. And that indeed is the story of those who support Torah. Listen to two amazing stories about those who support Torah. The first one is as follows. There was a, a young erudite Talmud scholar who was studying and studying and studying. And one day, a delegation from a small village came to the great rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Specter. And they said, we're looking for a rabbi to be the, be the rabbi of our village. Who do you recommend? He says, there's this young Talmud, you know, young Talmud Chacham, this young rabbi. Ask him. Now this young Talmud Chacham, they asked him and he said, look, I would like to be a rabbi. I've been studying for all these years, but I've got to ask my father-in-law right now. I'm living in the same city as my father-in-law, and he's supporting me in my learning. Let me go ask him. So he went to go ask his father-in-law, and his father-in-law says, look, he says, you need some more money? I'm going to add to your monthly stipend, but please, stay here with me. The wife was a little surprised. My father said that? Yeah, yeah, my father wanted, you know, it's like I would have, because the wife kind of wanted her husband to be a rabbi already. A few years go by. And by this time, he's a bigger Talmud Chacham, a bigger Torah study, uh, Torah scholar. And another delegation comes of a bigger city to Rav Yitzchak Elchan Inspector. And they say, we're looking for a rabbi. Before it was a small village, now it's a, a city. And he says, who do you recommend? He says, there's this, this young Talmud Chacham in our, in our city. Go ask him. They go to ask him. And it's a very, it's, it's a great position to be a rabbi of a small it's a city. It's a city. It's not just a village. It's a city. And his wife's like, we should do this, we should do this. Let's go ask your father. They go to the father-in-law, and the father-in-law says, look, it's so good for you over here, you're sitting and you're learning, and I'm able to support you. If, you're not making, if it's not enough, I'm going to add to your stipend. I'll add some more. So you'll get a bigger stipend now. From now on, please stay with me. Okay? Father-in-law asked. A couple more years go by. And at this point, there was a, a like a... A rabbinate, like a, 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 a convening rabbinate body. And they were looking for like someone. And this is like such a huge honor. And they came and asked for Yitzchak Elchanan Inspector, who should we have? And they said, this, this, this Talmud Chacham, he's been growing and growing. So they went, and this time, they went, and the, the wife says, we got to leave town. So they go to the father. you got to take this position. What an amazing opportunity. You could be the rabbi in this huge rabbinate. And they go to ask the father-in-law. The father-in-law says, look, if I'm not giving you enough, I'll add to the stipend. I'll add to the stipend. Please stay here with me. And the daughter says, Daddy, we can't anymore. I, I, I don't want to be dependent. So long we've been dependent on you. It's time for us to strike out on our own. Words that most parents would love to hear. What does he say? He said, who, who do you think's relying on who? Who do you think's supporting Who? kind of need you here, please. They say, look, we can't be here forever. We have this opportunity. So he reluctantly, he lets them go. The story's unbelievable. In those days, you would travel by wagon. It's a couple days trip. 
By the time they got to their new city, they found out, unfortunately, her father had passed. Who's supporting who? He knew it. I mean, again, he, he, it's not, how did he know it? I'm saying he just felt like, I'm getting my sustenance, my, lively, my liveliness from you more than you're getting it from me. One more unbelievable story. There was a... Um, Hold on a second. I've got lots of stories here. You guys are missing out. Next time I start going off in tangents, be like, Rabbi, get back to your book. I want more stories. Anyway, oh, okay. Doesn't say who it was about, but it doesn't say the name of the rabbi. There was a rabbi who was in Israel, and he's walking in the street, and he sees a Jew, an old Jew, who's got like a little push cart. And on the push cart is all kinds of, you know, Snacks and drinks and some bread, whatever. So he was trying to, you know, he says, let me, let me go buy from this guy. He's got an old yid, he's an old Jew. Let me go buy from him, help him, help his livelihood. So he goes out there and he starts striking up a conversation. Turns out this yid is an old yid from Europe before the war. The story happens in Eretz Yisrael many years later after the war, many decades after the war. So they end, up, they end up having a whole long conversation, and he's going over the different things, the, the trials and tribulations he had been through in his life. He says, you know, I'll tell you an interesting story. This old man says to this rabbi who came to buy some things from him, I'll tell you an interesting story. When I was a young bucher, when I was a young uh, a teenager, we lived, we were very poor, and we lived in the poor side of town, and we had these neighbors. And the neighbors had a boy... A young boy, 11, 12, and he was a, a very bright boy. He loved to study Torah. And he used to ask, everyone knew he, he always wanted to go to yeshiva. But his parents couldn't afford it. We have no idea the kind of poverty people lived in in those days. Like, no idea. He says, one night I hear sobbing. I hear sobbing from just outside the window. I put my ear up into the window, and I hear it's the little boy, and he's crying to his father, Daddy, Tati, Tati, please, please send me to Yeshiva to learn. I just want to learn Torah. I just want to learn Torah all day. You don't have to bring me back for the holidays. You don't have to bring me back for anything. Just buy me a ticket. Send me to Yeshiva. Please, please, I'm begging you. And the father is saying, I'm so sorry. I would love to. I, we, don't, we don't have any money. I, I don't have enough money to feed the family. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I just, I'm working as hard as I can. I don't. We don't have the money. So this man says, "I was sitting there. I heard this. I was like so impressed. I was so blown away. I decided I, I'm going to go. I'm going to get some side jobs. I'm going to get. I'm going to. I'm just going to work really, really, really hard. This father already is working as hard as he can. He can't. He can't do anything else. I'll get. I'll go to work for a couple weeks, and I'll eke out the money required for the ticket for whatever else is needed." So he says, for a couple weeks, I took this job and that job, and I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and finally, I had enough money. I came to the door, I knocked on the door, I said, hello, how are you, come on in, whatever. He says, what, what can we help you with? He says, you know, a couple weeks ago, I heard your son crying that he just wanted to go to yeshiva, and you said you didn't have enough money, so here's the money, please send your boy to yeshiva. And they say, the father got up and he was dancing with me. He was so thankful. The boy was dancing. They were so thankful. And we sent them off to yeshiva. 
Because I'm wondering what happened to that guy. That little boy, I wonder what happened to him. So the rabbi says to him, do you remember his name? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. His name was Aaron Cutler. <laughs> now, you have to understand. Rabbi Aaron Cutler is the one who launched the entire yeshiva movement of America. He's the one who started Lakewood Yeshiva, which today has 8,000 Torah students. 8,000 Torah students sitting learning all day and all night was started by Rabbi Aaron Cutler. Now this old man, he has no idea what he did. His act of tzedakah, supporting Torah, he has just literally no idea. And this rabbi, I'm sure, tried to tell him, and he still couldn't grasp it. He's a Jew, an old man living in Israel in the 1980s. He has no idea what's going to happen. This is gonna, this is, this is, he didn't see what the future is. In the 1980s, you know, Lakewood was a very small yeshiva in the 1980s. Then it got bigger in the 1990s, and bigger in the 2000s, and bigger in the 2010s. And now it's 8,000 people studying Torah all day long. I've been to Lakewood. You walk from study hall to study hall to study hall to study hall to study hall. Each one of them is filled 500 people sitting and studying loud. And that all happened because this one guy went to work for a couple weeks to raise the money for a ticket and the needed necessary items to send this boy to yeshiva. Boom! Who's carrying who? Who's carrying who? Zvulun, smach zvulun, b'tseisecha. Be joyous, zvulun, going out to work. And you suck on your tents. One last final idea. I forgot to say this before, but it's important to note also as well. Normally, when people go to work, people are going out on, on, on ships. They're going out to you know, do business. They're not happy going out. When they're going out, they're very concerned, very afraid. There's dangers. There's pirates. There's squalls. There's storms. You're usually happy when you come back and you've got you've, your ship laden with goods and you did trade and you did well. And as you see the harbor, whoo! All these months at sea, you were nervous, you were afraid, but now you finally come home. So it says, Smach zvulun Be happy zvulun when you go out. Normally people are only happy when they come back. So one of the, one of the commentators say, no. Because he's supporting Yisachar Ba'olecha, since he's supporting the Torah study of Yisachar, even when he goes out, he could be happy knowing that Hashem will take care of him and protect him because he's supporting Torah study. Huh? Yeah! Amazing! Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you all for listening. And thank you for being awesome and amazing. Yashikach. Have a good Shabbos. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.